Welcome to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor of Awakened Church, joined by Executive Pastor Jeremy Shane Suggs. Word to your mother. And Worship Pastor M. Grady Calhoun. Me. And we are your pastoral staff here at Awakened Church, back for another episode of the Wordsmith Podcast. Excited to be joining you guys again. So our conversation card for today is, what is your most treasured material possession, and why is it important to you? Okay, well, mine's, I, when you ask the question, uh, my dad's tool belt is my, oh. it's not, uh, monetarily, it's worth nothing. Sure. <laughs> um, but it was his tool belt. Uh, I still wear it and use it to work today whenever I, whenever I need a tool belt. Uh, and I will eventually, eventually it'll wear out because it's, it's pretty worn now. Um, like I, like I said, it's not worth anything monetarily, but it, obviously it, it means a lot to me because it sure. was my dad's, and mm-hmm. we kind of had the same profession. And so uh, I, that's definitely my most prized possession, mm-hmm. um, material possession there. So yeah, I had a lot of trouble with this question because normally when you ask something like this, it's not the most expensive thing you have. But one of the first things I thought of was that new guitar I bought, which... That is actually one of the most expensive things I own. And actually, it might be worth more technically than my truck. I was thinking about that. But I, one, I just didn't want that answer to be true. And then two, I, I'm also a practical person, so I had like practical reasons. Well, I'd have to get another guitar. It would affect things at church. Blah, 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 blah. So the exercise that I did to kind of figure this out was I asked myself, um, an imaginary scenario, my apartment's on fire, and I only have time to grab one thing. What would I grab? Uh, and spent several minutes thinking about it. And I, the conclusion I came to, was in my closet. I have two stuffed animals. One of them is Curious George, and the other is Daffy Duck. I had them when I was a small child, and I've kept them all these years. In fact, when Josh and Shane helped me move into my apartment, Shane saw these stuffed animals, and he made fun of me about it, which I went out of my way that to That sounds like me. Yeah. I don't remember this, but that does sound like me. <laughs> I had no doubt that you would also not remember it. I don't remember it either, but I definitely know that if you saw them, you would have made fun of them. Yes. Yes. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't grab Reginald? That was see. There's so many thoughts I have yeah, here. Yeah, I went back and forth on this. Yeah. yeah, thought number one was I was really hoping you were going to say Reginald, which is Pastor <laughs> Matt's butler. Yes, he is a butler. That was stolen. He has a life. He technically was stolen from a grocery store. However, I got him from a white elephant. So spiritually and uh, in a all Christian sense, I am not guilty of that. Yes. And I like just for clarifications for our <laughs> listeners, this is a statue. Yeah. Or, yeah. or what would you call it? It, it would be a display in a grocery store. <laughs> like a lawn ornament or something. What what is Reginald? Yeah, an idol. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a two foot butler. Yeah, I would say two foot yeah, probably a little less than two feet, I think, maybe. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Uh, so I was really hoping you were going with Reginald. Sure. I, I look, I thought about it, but again, using the scenario that I came up with, which one would I grab? I would grab those. Uh, I've had them all my life. It was kind of the sort of thing I imagine passing down to children, potentially at some point. And then also, it's there's a connection to my nephew. So when my nephew, uh, when I found out that he was going to be born, uh, I, it was back when I used to drive back to Georgia from Texas, which was an awful drive. Long 13, if you're a good 13-hour trip. And I stopped in Louisiana to get some snacks and use the bathroom. And I looked, and there were some stuffed animals there. And there was a Curious George one. It wasn't the exact same because it was a modernized Curious George or whatever. But I bought it for him, and that was actually the first thing he – first possession of his in his entire life or whatever, Mm. which he still has. 
And he played with it a little bit, but he's way too old for that now, obviously. And I'm sure my sister has it uh, in storage somewhere or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I went back and forth. I thought about Reginald. He occurred to me. I thought about that guitar. I, I thought about a couple other things. But uh, ultimately, using that fire scenario, that, that yeah. that's I think that's what I would grab. My, my other thought that was, as you were speaking, was the fact that you have an exercise to answer this question tells our listeners all they need to know about Pastor Matt. <laughs> I put um, thought into these things. Yes, very good. <laughs> so the uh, answer was pretty quick for me in my mind when the question popped up, was uh, thinking about my dad, and I have two boats from my dad. One was a bass boat that my dad bought maybe 2006, 2007. It was around the time Ashley and I got married. And the other is a John boat that we bought my dad bought when I was eight years old. I remember going with him to buy that boat. And that boat, although much less valuable than the bass boat, is my most prized possession because there are so many memories um, that my dad and I had in that boat. And now my boys and I are going in it. And You had it renovated, right? Yeah, last year I had it restored and spent some money. Probably, I probably spent more money restoring it than my dad bought, spent buying it yeah. back in the, um, let's see, around 1990. But um, just a lot of good memories. And... There's still a connection with my dad. I was working on the trailer um, this week and re- replacing some ball bearings. And evidently, my dad thought that when you put that nut back on the spindle of the axle, that you're supposed to tighten that as humanly poss- <laughs> as tight as you can humanly possibly get it. Although you're supposed to get it tight and then back off a, a hair. Mm-hmm. So my dad and I had a conversation that day about how frustrating he was making or how frustrated he was making me because <laughs> I couldn't get this nut off of the spindle because he yeah. put it on so tight <laughs> and uh, might also be something to do with why the bearing was stuck to the spindle I don't Maybe know so, yeah. yeah lots of good memories with that boat and now my boys and I spend a lot of time with it my kids have already claimed boats Sawyer he wants the bass boat because he wants the nicer newer <laughs> that's toy like Sawyer, yeah. and Finn wants Papa's boat the the John boat because <laughs> That's just his personality. Well, at he least they're not fighting over it, I he, guess. He wants the one that Papa loved the most. And my yeah. dad made very clear to me. I, this I've actually answered this question incorrectly because they're not my possessions. Because my dad made very clear to me that everything he was giving me was not mine, that it was the boys. They were just too young to receive it. There you so go. I was to hold on so to it. So you're the conduit. I'm the <laughs> conduit. He left me nothing okay. and left everything to them. I just have to manage them and mm-hmm. protect them That's and right. yeah. restore them. There's something beautiful about things being passed down through families. Though. Sure. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I hope that boat lasts to our family for generations. Yeah, I actually have. Like, I, I was a little torn, like uh, maybe Matt was sort of. Runner-up, I guess, in uh, my most prized possession would be my grandfather's wedding ring. Um, and and the reason my dad's belt, I guess, kind of won out because we didn't have a great relationship growing up before we passed away, kind of rekindled that. And so it was kind of fresh in my mind. But uh, my grandmother actually gave me my grandfather's wedding. I don't wear it now because I actually lost one of the diamonds in it. And Jamie told me, you need to keep that put up for like safekeeping and you'll be able to pass it down. So I will actually, that'll be the one thing that I actually pass down to the next generation. I still got to get another diamond put in it. Mm -hmm. But after I do that, I'm going to get it like a jewelry restore, which is kind of expensive. So that's why I'm saving up (laughs) Um, and actually get that, that ring restored and I'll, I'll pass it down eventually uh, one day. The, the belt probably won't make it to pass down because just tool belts don't, 
you know, they deteriorate. Hard to restore a tool belt. Yeah, you really can't. Um, they're they're leather and they just pretty wore out now. So. You need to just frame that thing like professional wrestlers well, do with their to, championship. Yeah, belts. well, I'm trying to because uh, it has you know it has pouches on both sides and a and a hammer ring in the back. Shadow box, um, man. Shadow um, box. Yeah, but I, I, like even with that, they're not thick. It's it's just a weird thing to try to find a way to preserve. I'll probably just uh, whenever I get my shop built behind my house. I will probably find a place to just kind of hang it, and it'll kind of be like a just something I see every time I go in there to work. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. These sentimental items are, are really neat. Well, let's transition into the text today. We're going to be in First John chapter two, verses three through fourteen, and John says, "This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him." But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yes, I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, Father, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. All right, so John comes straight out of the gate with an interesting phrase here in verse 3. This is how we know that we know him and deals specifically with the idea of salvation and following Jesus, the fact that we do know him. And he says, if you keep his commands. What does this mean? That we will know him, or that we'll know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And how does that correlate with James chapter 2, which is a popular passage with faith without works is dead? Because to truly know God, like it's not know. And we talked about this a little bit um, last week with walk, right? Not physically walk, it's it's an idiom. Well, know in the same sense is to know God is to um, not just have intellectual information about him or intellectual acceptance about him, but it's to have a relationship, that kind of covenantal relationship. So if you truly know God, if you're in relationship with him, if he has revealed himself to you and you have seen him and you have tasted of his goodness, to, to borrow from the psalm, that it has to change you. There's one guy, uh, T.B. LaBurge. I always remember his name because that's a great name. It sounds like it should be a detective in some movie from the 40s or something. T.B. LaBurge said one time, thinking you can know God and not be changed by him is like jumping in the ocean and expecting not to be wet. It's just, it's not, it's inconceivable. There's no way knowing God can't, knowing God has to change you, has to change the way you live and has to change um, who you are and how you have your being in this world. Well, and there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Mm-hmm. You know, and Adrian Rogers, I think, penned this really well. He said, 
that when you study, you study the Bible to know about God. Mm-hmm. Obey the Bible to really know God. That's right. Yeah. And um, that's the process of sure. you know, discipleship and following and, and being a believer. It's about this, this pursuit after Jesus, and it's in obedience that we truly know him. And, and there's a lot of different interpretation as when he says, hey, if you you got to keep my commands, and mm-hmm. people are like, okay, what, is, what does he actually mean by that? And uh, some people say, well, that means the commands Jesus gave, love God and love others, like that's... Sure. That's what you. That's what it means. Some people believe it means like you have to obey basically any principles taught in the New Testament. But mm-hmm. I think we've kind of hit on it here. I, I believe it means to to walk or to live your life according to Scripture. I think that would, in a broad sense, I think that's mm-hmm. what is meant when he writes uh, these words here. Yeah, yeah. And James addresses this, and as we mentioned earlier in James chapter two says, faith without works is dead. And he makes that comment. He says, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Mm-hmm. And you can twist that. We even talked about that in our men's Bible studies. Yeah. You can twist that to be like, hey, you need to have works to be saved. But that's not at all the, the meaning of Scripture. Sure. The Scripture is that true faith works, mm-hmm. that there is a living out of what God has done inside of you which Paul addressed, and we talked about in the podcast before, in work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you're living out what God has worked into you, that it, it just overflows into your life. Sure. And whenever, uh, just for our listeners' own edification, I guess, um, whenever we read uh, in Christ, it, Paul uses that term quite a bit. Yes. Uh, broadly speaking, whenever you read those words in Christ, it means in relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. It's and it's kind of hard to understand if you don't understand like like biblical language. But sure. basically, whenever you read that, uh, and and especially in Paul's writing, because he uses it quite a bit, that that's all it simply means is just being in relationship mm-hmm. with Christ. Uh, there's some outworking of that, but just a kind of basic understanding of of what you're actually reading. Yeah, in Christ is Paul's most common um, description for a Christian. Uh, yeah. There's a couple other he's used, but that's the one he uses most. And uh, according to Sinclair Ferguson, he said it, he counted up to 180 instances of it. Oh okay, wow! Yeah. yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna come up on that a lot. So I just want you to sure. be aware of what you're actually reading because sometimes it it sounds like ultra spiritual, like and and it is. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It shouldn't be complicated to understand exactly what Paul means. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a it's a spiritual reality. That also leads to a physical reality. Sure, they're not separate things; they 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 form together. Yeah, there, there's a a true connection there between knowing and obedience and following to truly being in Him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to to just knowing about Him. And I've heard the analogy before of a baseball card. You know, like I can pick up a baseball card and know about Chipper Jones. That doesn't mean I know. Sure, yeah, Chipper Jones. You sure. know that kind of connection as well. I, I think Daniel Aiken does a good job of pointing out what John is doing in this letter when he says. That basically, there's three a threefold test that John is giving believers um, throughout this letter, and the first fold is, do I believe the right things about Jesus? And he calls this the theological test. Mm-hmm. And John certainly talks about these theological truths throughout his letter. Secondly, do I obey the commands of God? And he calls this the moral test. And you know, here we see this head on that if we truly know Him, then we obey Him. Mm-hmm. And then the third test that he gives throughout his letter is do I love others? And he calls that the ethical test. And so you'll see this rhyme and rhythm throughout the Gospel of John to say what true believers really look like is somebody that knows the right things about God, they obey God, 
and they love others. Um, and sometimes we don't tie all those things together. We make them second and third tiers mm-hmm. of Christianity, mm-hmm. but John is making them foundational to having a relationship and to being in, in Christ, as Pastor Shane was mentioning. Sure, and and part of the reason he's writing the letter is because there was, uh, a, in in a sense, a church split, and he's talking, to, uh, he's making sure, look, you, you got to love the others. You know, you got to, to love other people. Um, maybe they don't uh, agree with you on everything or, or whatever sure, it may sure. be, but he, he's he's promoting church unity. Like, that's, that is... A way to know that you are in Christ as you are keeping unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yep, absolutely. Verse six goes on to kind of wrap this part of it up. It says, The one who says he remains in him, so the one that is in Christ, should walk just as he walked. What what's what does it mean to walk the way that Jesus walked? Well, again, it it this is a further development of what we talked about last week. Walk, obviously not physical steps, it's the pattern of your life. The behaviors, the actions that you take over a, a lifetime is, is indicative of what you truly believe. Uh, so I, I wrote down three broad categories for how we actually do this. What does it look like? Prayer, preparation, and perseverance. That's the preacher boy in me. Uh, little, little, <laughs> little alliteration. Little alliteration. So obviously it has to begin with prayer because first and foremost, walking with Jesus begins with what he has done. Yes. Like I, I can't I can't begin there. If I begin something in my own strength, it will fail. I need the spirit to uh, renew me and to then give me life. So first it's asking God to help me follow him, asking God to help me be more like Christ and live as Christ lived. Next is preparation. So how do we know what it is to be like Christ? Well, we've got the uh, the word right there, right? Mm-hmm. You have to spend time in the word. There's no aspect of the Christian life where you don't meditate on what God has revealed to us and he he still he is still speaking to us through primarily through his word. He he speaks through creation to a degree. He speaks through uh, our brothers and sisters of Christ. That's an important aspect. But you have to begin with the word and then kind of judge everything else by that. Sure. And then lastly it's just the act of perseverance because um, as we kind of talked about in previously is it, it's so easy to look on our own actions and to see our failures, to see our hypocrisies, to see our stumbling. And we need that perseverance so that we know we have been paid for. We are bought. We are no longer our own. So now as we are trying to live in accord to what God's Word reveals and to what the apostles once taught and still teach, we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But we have to keep pressing forward mm-hmm. because God is going to finish the work that he began in us. A remarkable thing just happened there. Pastor Matt alliterated and had a three-point sermonette. There you go. Acha. Amen. Mm-hmm. For those of you that don't know, Pastor Matt's a one-point preacher. That is so my preference. He had yes. three amazing points for that passage. <laughs> yeah, and this walk like Jesus, you know, it, it's it's a call to to live the way that Jesus did. And you remember the old bracelets, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Um, which kind of got cheesy at, oh, at sure. times, but it was it's, it's a good got question. Cheesy? I think it started that way. <laughs> oh, boo. Oh, I, I boo this man. Oh, did you boo. never have a what would Jesus, a no, WWJD never, bracelet? never own one. Matter of fact, I judged the people who did. No, I'm joking. I didn't, but I'll, I thought it was cheesy from the beginning. Uh, yeah. this. So from our listeners, I'd be curious. Text us, talk to us, let us know. How many of you had a yeah. WWJD? I did. I, don't, yeah. I think it's it's a good question to ask. Yeah. yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, I agree. And I thought the bracelet was a good idea. Of course, you have to be a child of the 90s, I guess, for this to, to really be applicable. But you would, the whole point is you stop and look and go, okay, wait, how would Jesus handle this situation? How would Jesus love, forgive? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe part of my um, 
apprehension about that whole movement is most of the people I saw wearing that, I was like, yeah, they're, oh, sure. they're not really, yes. they're not really paying attention to that bracelet. It's more jewelry than it is anything. Yeah. I mean, that's human nature. We, <laughs> sure. we take these things and make them status symbols. It's yeah. sort of like, you remember the live strong bracelets or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You mainly wore those cause you wanted people to know status that icon. you were in. Yeah. You, you, you were in the inner circle, the inner ring. You knew, yes. you knew it was up. Yeah, you were in a youth group in the 90s if yeah, you had yeah. a WWJD bracelet. I'd have to imagine so, yeah. Which Pastor Shane was not. Uh, no, I was. Yeah, I was, I was definitely you, in no, a youth group. You definitely weren't though. if you didn't have a WWJD bracelet. No, I, I was in one. I was a leader in a youth group. He's the exception that proves the rules. Yes. Pastor Shane also likes to make fun of things. Well, yeah, things that are cheesy. <laughs> Let's right. move on. We digress. Um, how does our relationship with others, and this is something John addresses throughout this letter, Reflect what the gospel is really doing in us. So it's really talking about that third test that Aiken mentioned. How am I doing loving others? How does that, how I treat others, how I love others, show how the gospel is working in me? I think um, a big part of that is, and we've said it before from the stage and on the podcast, a lot of that isn't always just how you act, but also how you react. Sure. And Mm -hmm. I think loving others more so is how you react because we're such reactionary people. And, you know, we uh, even have like, we'll, we'll say things like, you know, I'll love them when they love me or I'll show them respect when they show me respect or mm-hmm. something like that. We we want to react to what someone else has done. But if, if we go back to what Matt said is, is if we first focus on Christ and what he has already done, respect was his idea. He, he uh, uh, patterned it for us. Perfectly. So if I have a relationship with him, I should be learning from him what respect looks like mm-hmm. to sh- respect others, whether or not they respect me. Um, I don't I don't react to what they do. I react to what he did, mm-hmm. if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And well, we have one of these cases where we create these next level Christianity things. Sure. But when we get to the scriptures, they're foundational. So, you know, Jesus said, what's the two most important commandments? Love God and love others. And then in the Gospel of John, he says, hey, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love others the same way that I've loved you. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes as believers, we can think, man, maybe one day I'll grow to love others the way God's called us. But John's saying, look, if you don't love others, has the gospel really penetrated your heart? Are you yeah, really yeah. believing? Are you really following? Um, and that doesn't mean you're perfect in that love for oh, others. Certainly not, no. doesn't mean that you struggle to forgive others or have difficulty in those kinds of situations. But mm-hmm. there's certainly a correlation there to the love that we have for others and the gospel working in us. Yeah, I, the church has long understood that um, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength, um, and to then love others as you love yourself, they are two separate commands, but they're always linked together. Yeah. You, you really can't have sure. one without the other. And Micah Edmondson, who is a pastor in Nashville now, I believe, he said this years ago, we show our feelings about the Lord by the way we treat people made in his image. Yeah. Um, and that's one. That's a quote I come back to time and time again because it convicts me every time. Because I want to prove that I um, that I have good feelings, that I love the Lord by my knowledge, by my actions, by what I do with my my professional life, all those sorts of things. But no, uh, the greatest indicator is how do I treat other people created in His image? And oh, by the way, everyone's created in His image. Yeah. Sure, yeah. You know, I've been reading in Exodus lately, and. Um, mm-hmm. Moses even said, like uh, the people were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, and he says, "You're you're not you're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God." And I understand that's a 
because uh, he was uh, a prophet and priest, oh, sure, I guess. Sure. Um, so the the uh, the situation is a little bit different. However, I think it still stands true uh, in, in Scripture that how we do treat others, especially those in leadership, that God has placed in leadership in our lives, hmm. directly reflects what we think about God and, and how we would treat him. And, I mean, John's pretty straightforward here with it. He says, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother and sister is in darkness until now. Mm-hmm. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going. Yeah. And I think yeah. all of this ties in together. So the first few verses talking about obeying his commands, and then these verses talking about loving each other and loving other people. It's this idea that we can say we believe one thing, we can think we believe one thing, but our actions really show what we truly believe. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, I, I could be sitting in my house and think, well, I think my house is on fire. I believe my house is on fire. But if I don't get up and start running and grabbing my stuffed yeah. animals out of the closet, then I don't really believe my house is on fire. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's it, it would also be important to um, understand he's talking about – now, there, there are verses. We, we treat everybody with respect and love, and, you know, there's a yeah. way we treat everybody. But he's talking specifically here about other believers. He's yeah. not he's not talking in a general sense of this is how you should treat everybody. But and again, part of that was probably because there was some problems in this particular yeah, church, mm-hmm. and he's trying to bring things back together. Uh, and so he's like, hey, you, you need to you can't treat your brother and sister like this and think you're walking in the light. You know, you're walking in the darkness. Yeah. So I think we need to kind of differentiate that. Yeah, yeah, but also to make clear, you're still supposed to love your enemies. No, no, yeah. absolutely. I'm, that's what I'm saying. They're, yeah, we don't those, we don't want to accidentally give people an out. No, yeah. those, those yeah. things are all these things we find mm-hmm. elsewhere in Scripture. It does. Mm-hmm. He says, "Love your enemies." You know, love your neighbor. You know, he, he's talking about specific groups of people, and and so here he's talking about yes, other believers. Mm-hmm. And so I just want us to kind of we're we're focused in on that. In John's writing, mm-hmm. not to, it, yeah. I just don't want to um, kind of convolute it to, oh, like, sure. yeah. you know, it's just everybody. Well, and believers can be vicious towards each other. Yes, sadly. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen that. Mm-hmm. Really? I'm yeah. joking. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's one of the saddest things that, one of the true marks of a believer that we find in Scripture is that we love each other, and sometimes, That's right. um, I, I'll throw this story in here, and I, I think I actually mentioned this in season one, but I'll mention it again. I was preaching at a church in Kentucky in a tent, and I was in the tent because the church had been burnt down by some teenage arsonist, and I preached on how it's stupid for churches to fight over color of the carpet, and those things can get really, really heated. Sure. And um, this guy comes in the back, and I had a suit and tie on and all this, and he jacks me up by my suit and tie, and he says, I know that preacher told you to preach that, and that's wrong. I was like, what is going on here? So the preacher and I went out for lunch, and I mentioned, he said, oh, tell me he didn't do that. I'm like, yeah. He said, well, our church is actually fighting over the color of the carpet, and (laughs) half of the church wants to build it back exactly like it was, Mm -hmm. and the other half wants to make some renovations and change colors and build a newer sanctuary. I've never been a part of a church or even been to a church that, and and, but I've heard tales of people like like you're telling me, and, and I mean, I'm... I know the story's true, but I, I've just never actually like, man, I've never been like, but part of me wants to just because I like, I, I don't know. Like, you like arguing. Um, <laughs> everybody does, I think. No. 
Sure they do. Everybody does. Now we're arguing about whether or not people like uh, But the difference between when you and I disagree, <laughs> I argue is a strong term. Let's we'll say argue. You enjoy it. I don't. I, I do <laughs> I do I, it, but I don't I'm not enjoying it. You enjoy it. <laughs> For those of you who are confused, this is an episode of the podcast. This is not a, a group therapy session by any stretch of the method. Uh yeah, what were we talking about? <laughs> you were you were talking about how you've never been a part yeah, of a church yeah, that I, has that crazy yeah. of a, a and, and I don't know, maybe I've just I've I've been fortunate enough sure. the the Lord has just kind of yeah. not let me pastor a church that had situations like mm-hmm. that. But I I have heard of them and I have been aware of them. Sure. Uh and it's man, it's a bad thing to to have a church that almost splits on something that's not an so trivial. Thing. So but, trivial. But but at the same time, and here's here's the way in my mind where I'm like, it's it's a trivial thing. It's it's definitely not a doctrinal thing. And even on doctrinal things, people there it's not like a, a first tier thing, it's more sure, of a second sure. tier thing. But I think I think anything that separates God's people in that moment becomes a first tier issue in that moment. It needs to be resolved because it is separating God's people. And yep. uh, again, it can be a trivial thing, but I don't think we should because this is this is my mo. I'll look at a church like that, like they're so silly, like and, and it is. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to separate over oh, sure. the color of carpet or a stained window or you know whatnot but I, I think like no that that's a that's a very important issue apparently for them even if it's a trivial if it because it's separating god's people yeah yeah and, it's um, the it's the argument that becomes the first order issue. right exactly yeah, yeah that's the, what i'm trying to it's say it's not the actual color of the carpet that right right issue. that's that's what i'm well, saying the that, fact yeah. that this issue is so so emotionally charged that it's becoming something that is actually separating the body yes yeah. right i agree yeah. well and it, it's kind of similar to like a marriage relationship. So if my wife and I were to argue about, let's say me leaving a toothbrush out on the sink with toothpaste on it, we wouldn't really be arguing about a toothbrush. You know, you, you have all these small arguments in life where you're not really arguing about small things. It's just kind of the symptom that comes to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I think as believers, when we're having these huge blowups over these kind of things, it's a deeper issue of what's, what's going on in our hearts and our lives mm-hmm. and to where we say a spiritual maturity Hey, I'm supposed to love my brother and sister. I don't not really care if the carpet's blue or red That's or right. green or whatever. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those and and to be honest, most times I've ever heard about very ardent fights in church, it's typically not over a doctrine. And as a matter of fact, most people don't leave a church over a doc. Like yeah. I have a doctrinal disagreement with what you teach, mm-hmm. and so I'm leaving the church to go somewhere where. I, they believe more. It's it's very seldom is not that that doesn't ever happen. Oh, sure. yeah. But very seldom is that the reason somebody leaves a church or the reason a church uh, is is uh, disunified uh, over some issue. It's usually not something like that. It's usually something like, "Hey, I don't I don't like that song that Pastor Matt sings," yeah. or something like that. Like, yeah. so How I'm dare not, they? or that style of music. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave. It's it's not necessarily mm-hmm. something like that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. So so John is definitely writing about the unity of yeah. of of yeah. believers. It's important. It's essential. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then he transitions in verses twelve through fourteen into a very poetic and interestingly phrased. It's just weird. Weird. <laughs> we'll go with weird instead of interesting. It, uh, it can be both, yeah. Um, yeah. So he uses a couple of different things here instead of reading all three verses here. In the first three ver- or the first two verses, the first three stanzas, I guess we could say, 
he says, I'm writing to you. And then when verse 14, he switches to, I have written to you. Mm -hmm. And then he uses a progression. He calls them children. He calls them fathers. And he calls them young men. Mm -hmm. And he's dealing with issues that are repeated um, throughout these verses. So what's going on in these verses? Okay, so uh, as I've already mentioned, man, just a really weird passage. <laughs> yeah. If you if you look at a printed Bible, if you're at home and you're near your Bible, it's always blocked off, right? So it's further indented than the rest of the thing. So that what that means is it's either one, if you're looking at the Old Testament, it's normally an example of poetry. Sure. This is probably not poetry. Or it's something rhetorical in nature. So one of the things, and look, uh, I've mentioned her several times, Karen Jobes, uh, a scholar, she wrote a book, uh, a commentary on First John. Um, she's very solid. She wrote uh, a commentary on First Peter, which is one of the best commentaries I've ever uh, had any experience with. She spends a whole chapter on just these three verses. Yeah. Um, she breaks it away from the rest of the book because it's there's a lot of arguments about precisely what this is, right? So we and we can't get too deep into that today or really anytime. But what is generally believed is this this is a rhetorical device that they would recite and then memorize. Because one of the things you have to remember is the receivers of the New Testament, pretty much all of them, that's the first century, they lived in oral societies. They didn't have, everybody didn't have the copy of the scriptures. Everybody didn't have books. Like, you, if you had books back then, you were almost certainly rich. <laughs> right. Or at the very least, middle class. Um, so they had to memorize things. They had to memorize their stories. They had to memorize orally things that were, you and I can just write them down and keep them and have them forever. And now we live in a digital age where I can write something, uh, put something in my computer. I can go to visit California or something and pull it up, right? Mm-hmm. So they, our, our society is different. So they would have these rhetorical devices to kind of memorize things and recite these things. And in a weird way, a lot of this, uh, these three verses, is a kind of a summary of some of John's main arguments or whatever. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's writing this originally, and this is something that he's coming up with on the spot, or maybe he's reciting something that some of the churches there that he was over were already reciting. It's, We'd call that a creed. Uh, it would be creedish in, yes. in nature or whatever. It's hard, again, we can't know for certain, but it's... It's clearly, I don't think he's only speaking to the little children. I don't think he's only speaking to the fathers. I don't think yeah. he's only speaking to the young men. I think that's just some sort of device that at that time they used to help kind of remember these things. Yeah. And Piper seems to indicate that he's under the impression that John was talking to maybe different levels of spiritual, addressing different levels A lot of, of people spiritual maturity that, yeah. um, through this. And, and Piper says it in an interesting way, almost like, he was riding, he kept saying, little children, little children, and he's like, oh, I may be offending the, the older believers. I'm not so sure that that's exactly <laughs> that might be what, what's yeah. going on there, but um, he, he does repeat three different themes through here. He does repeat children, young men, fathers, and, and, and there is at least some possibility there that he's making sure to address different sure, spiritual yeah. levels of spiritual maybe so, maturity. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe even in that, and this is just me thinking, so it's, I think about, as Paul writes, this is me, not God, saying this, um, but he's, he's been pretty harsh, not harsh, but it, it's a pretty strong stance here. If you love God, you keep his commandments. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a subtle reminder that there is room for levels of maturity That's in right. that, right. that everyone is not a fully grown mm-hmm. believer, that mm-hmm. they're perfect yeah. in all of this. But there are stages of spiritual maturity. There is next level stuff. It's just all of it is essential. 
Yes, yes. And he's dealing with kind of the essential, some of the essential implications of the gospel, right? Since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning, because you have conquered the evil one, uh, because you have come to know the Father, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning, because you are strong, God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. That's true for everybody who's in Christ. Yeah, sure. So he's he basically, he's trying to remind them, these are these things that are most true about you. Yep. You have to remember them as you're trying to address what it is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yep. And to kind of summarize it, you're forgiven, you know the Father, mm-hmm. and you're victorious. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the recurring themes throughout that. So, Great discussion on First John chapter 2. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back for our deep dive into the idea of cheap, easy believism. Okay, we are back for our deep dive, and we're going to dive into um, an idea that I think, believe it was Leroy Fourlines who coined the term um, in his short book in 1975 called Cheap Easy Believism and why it's not the gospel. So the way I'm going to segue into this, I'm going to tell you a quote that I heard recently, and then I'd like for us to discuss it. So I just want to clarify, I'm not saying this quote is true. I think it'll segue into a good discussion. A guy named Paul Washer Recently, I heard a clip from him where he said that the sinner's prayer is possibly responsible for more people going to hell than anything in modern Christianity. And I paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that statement? Sort of. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think it's the, not the single most. Sure. And, and that's the thing with, with quotes. Um, is you're not necessarily hearing all of it in context sure, sure, sure. and th- those sort of things. Uh, and I know I hate it when people take me out of context, but the the quote at face value, I don't, I would, I wouldn't agree with it because I believe scripture speaks to the opposite. I mean, it does say believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And that's all we're, and I think the sinner's prayer, it's not necessarily recorded in scripture as anybody ever sure. did that, mm-hmm. but I think it's a, I think it's a pragmatic tool that pastors have used, mm-hmm. maybe to a fault, but they have used to to see that verse fleshed out. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I want, like I, you you feel more confident when somebody says, "Yes, I I turn away from my sin and I want to trust in Christ." You know, you you hear someone, you know, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and and I think during that you you ask people, "Hey, do you, do you believe this?" Well, if you do believe this. Say something along these lines is kind of the the because yeah. everybody sinner's prayer is not like a uh, something that's written down and given to all pastors and hey say this with somebody when they come to the altar sure. and, and so we don't see it in scripture but we do see scripture that tells us that when we use that pragmatic tool that we're not being unbiblical mm-hmm. though I think we probably use it to a fault and I think it's given a lot of false security sure I think if. That in and of itself is what you rely on to know that oh, you sure. are uh, that you have faith in Christ. I think his I think his uh, statement would ring true if that's all you do. But I think you have to take it along with other scriptures. You know, like Paul said, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this he's talking to people who have already come to faith in Christ. 
and he says this to them. It's not, hey, did you ever say this prayer? Well, if you did, you're good. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I, I think if that were true, then yes, his statement would be 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that most most people that I know aren't doing that. Hey, well, I, I said this prayer one time, so I'm good. I, most people are like, well, no, I like I yeah, I said that prayer, but also, you know, I you know, I'm, I'm I read my Bible, I witness to people, yeah. you know. Well, the danger when you say most people there, you're thinking of most people who you know who are actually following Jesus. But I think yes. his thing would be there's a lot of people that have said that, and they do cling to that because that's all they've got. Now, well, the, the, the reason is you probably don't interact with as many of those people because you're thinking in the church context. Well, yeah, I am, but since, since I've been in church most of my life, I have seen people like say the sinner's prayer, and then they, you know, they go to church for a few yeah. months, few years, and then they kind of fall away and kind of go do their own thing. So I have, I've. I have also seen that, but in my own personal experience, that that's not the majority of that's not the majority of the people that say they are saved. Most of the people that I know that have said that and have walked away from the church or just kind of just went off and lived their own life. They're not bad, yeah. evil people. You wouldn't categorize them that. Oh, sure. Most of them wouldn't say, "Oh no, I'm saved because I said that prayer one time." Most most of them, the people I know, wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, see, I think of a, a very contrasting situation because my dad was like that. My dad had said the sinner's prayer when he was eight years old and got baptized, and it became a stumbling block to him. Yeah. Because when I would try to talk to him about salvation, he would, no, I, I did that when I was eight. Yeah. yeah. That's done. I, I can't get saved. I, I, it was almost like he was betraying his grandmother who, you know, led him in the sinner's prayer. Sure. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until after he got diagnosed with terminal cancer that he kind of switched that conversation with me and said, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really don't think I'm saved. And we were able to really walk through what the gospel really means and yeah. what it means to follow him. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, I truly believe it. You know, during that time, he he had a, a transformational salvation. You know, that changed oh, sure. his life. Yes, and, yes. and I think that's what salvation ultimately is. And so, but mm-hmm. but I'll say this: for thirty something years, until he was actually faced with death, that's for, for, no, like fifty years. Yeah. He held on to that eight prayer he had when he was eight years old that, hey, I'm good because I said this prayer and I was baptized when that, I was eight. But on his quote, though, is that the majority of the people? See, I saw him saying. Well, I think like there's I, a lot of people like that. I know people like that, but I'm saying the people that I know, that's not the majority of them because he said it's because basically Paul Washer's statement was the majority of the people who said that aren't really yep. saved. And so what I think he's saying is talking about like thousands of people that come forward at a crusade, mm-hmm. oh, sure, say a prayer. Sure. sure. And maybe a hundred of them actually follow Jesus and, yeah. and live through it. He's yeah. saying those not other nine hundred people probably believe I'm okay with God because I said a prayer. And because that's kind of what they've been led to believe. Not necessarily intentionally, but yeah. and that's what Leroy Fourlines addresses in his short book is this idea that we've unintentionally nobody's intentionally said, I want to give people a false sense of security over saying a prayer. Sure. But in just trying to create converts We've accidentally done that because we've created converts, not disciples. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, I think Bill Hull does a great job in his book, Conversion and Discipleship. He says they're two sides of the same coin. There's no conversion plus discipleship. Conversion is discipleship. Yeah. That following Jesus is um, that. And I remember as a freshman in college, Bible college, I did. I had a healthy struggle with my salvation. Mm-hmm. Like I really sure. began to ask that question: Am I saved? And it, it, here's what happened: I was at Bible college. And one of the guys, we had a day of prayer um, at Bible college every year, and one of my friends stood up and he said, hey, my whole life I thought I was saved, 
and I got to Bible college, and I realized I wasn't really saved. And it shook me because I was like, whoa, whoa, I think I'm saved. Yeah. <laughs> what if I'm wrong about yeah. that? Mm-hmm. And I really struggled with it. And here's when I really was able to solidify this after, I mean, months of struggling through this and saying the sinner's prayer thousands of times to make sure that I had said it the right way, you know? <laughs> and and, and it, but it was really, it was a struggle. Yeah. And I remember looking back to January 22nd, 1997, and my assurance that I found in salvation was not that I said a prayer on January 22nd, 1997. It was that I was a different person on January 23rd. 1997, that there was a true, I could look back and see a noticeable difference of who I was pre and post that prayer. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we look to for for assurance of salvation is the transformation that Christ has done in us, not the prayer that was said. Yeah. As in general, I would say I disagree with the quote. I do think there's truth to it. I think he's probably a little more harsh or a little more uh, dogmatic about it than I would be. One, I don't think... I don't think you can put blame on the sinner's prayer itself, right? I think, first and foremost, if someone uh, believes they're a Christian and ends up uh, in the fullness of time, the great white throne room judgment, when that day comes and it turns out, hey, you're not a Christian, uh, first and foremost, the first person to blame is themselves. Yeah, that, That's the first thing I want to make clear. But then secondly, I think it's an impediment. I, I think it, it's, it, it could potentially harm people. I think your dad's belief, or f- former belief, that, that he was good— that obviously hindered him, but there mm-hmm. should have been other signs along the way or what have you. And, and right. thankfully, uh, God sovereignly worked that out. Um, and I want to make clear as well, I, I think Brother uh, Paul Washer, I think he's a genuine believer. I believe he's a brother in Christ. Sure. I think he's a good gospel minister. I, from There's some things I would disagree with him from time to time about, no, let there be no con- confusion about that. So I don't want us to... I don't want anybody to listen to this and think we're talking bad about Paul Washer. By no means. We're just talking about this one quote, this one thing he said. And I do think there are people out there, no doubt, that believe that because they said this thing one time, they're good to go. And obviously that's a concern, and we need to be careful about that. Um, And we need to be careful about the way that we present the gospel and the way that we disciple the people here at our church to avoid that. Um, But it needs to be said, like, Ultimately, that's on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to wrap this up with with two thoughts. One is we're very intentional here about how we lead the sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, one, we will most always use the terminology that it's not saying it; it's meaning it. And you know, I, I often use the correlation like a wedding vow. Mm-hmm. Saying wedding vows mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything if you don't mean it. Sure. The second thing is we always try to include the aspect of following and surrender to that because that that is what salvation is. It's a laying of your life down to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm giving you everything. You know, a lot of terms, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul calls it being a living sacrifice. And so that one, we're very intentional. So we do the sinner's prayer here at our church, but we're intentional to try to include those aspects of it. Secondly, and this is what I really would like to hit home with our listeners. If the only evidence in your life of salvation is that you said a prayer, that would be a, a dangerous place to be. Sure, in. Yeah. You, there needs to be some reevaluation. You should be able to look back and say, mm-hmm. "Okay, here's the evidence that I am obeying His commands, that I am following Him, that I do love other people." That that John's addressing in this letter doesn't mean you're perfect in any of those things, but there is an evidence that God is sure. transforming and renewing you through the process of discipleship and salvation. Mm-hmm. And I would I would say it needs to be deeper than I'm a good person and I go to church. Oh, absolutely. Um, because I mean, to be honest, m- most people that I, that I know that like, you're, man, you just I don't I don't I'm not sure you know or something like that. It's uh, people rely on that 
much too much like, hey, I'm a good person. I go to church. Hey, I'm in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess you couple that with, hey, I said a prayer one time. So, you know, I'm I'm good to go now. Uh, no, it, it definitely needs to be deeper and more exhaustive than that. Yeah. And there's a flip side of this coin. Mm-hmm. Where it's the danger of doubting your salvation to the point where it's not healthy, and oh, sure. there's a, creates this irrational sure. fear and those kinds of things. Now, I, I mentioned that I struggled with that through my freshman year of college, but it was a healthy thing for me, and I think mm-hmm. ultimately it was a thing for me as a pastor that's helped me help other people. Yeah, you know, sure. but there is an assurance in salvation. Like sure. we're not supposed to live afraid that we haven't followed Jesus, we haven't mm-hmm. given Him our life, but we do want to make sure that we've actually done that. You but know, yeah, there, and see, there's a there's because we talked about it on our podcast, like uh, if you know if if you've been walking with the Lord, if you've been in Christ, as we've talked about today, if you've been in Christ for thirty years, there ought to be a stark difference between that person and the person who's been in Christ for a year or two. Mm-hmm. There should be more evidence. It should be more clear to you and everyone around you that you are walking with Christ because you've been doing it for 30 years. Then if you've been, look, if you, if you're uh, a, uh, as Paul says, a babe in Christ, like if you are a, a newer believer, you've only been saved like a few years. You've only been walking with Christ a few years. Look, show yourself some grace sometimes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. say, you know, look, look yeah, there, there is evidence and it, it, maybe it's not a lot. Maybe it's not as clear. Um, but if you've been walking with the Lord, you know, 20, 30 years, there should be a different criteria that you judge yourself uh, with. And not, not me judging you, but you judging yourself. Great discussion on cheap, easy believism. And of course, if you're a part of our church or not a part of our church and listen to this and you want to talk through some of these issues, maybe you have questions about it yourself and your own salvation, uh, we as pastoral staff would love to talk to you individually or as a group. So let us know. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute to wrap up this episode of The Word Speak. We are back to wrap up this week of the Wordsmith Podcast. So let me ask you this simple question. What are your takeaways from these verses? What, what do we, how do we live out what we just walked through? For me, I, I think it, it was somewhat convicting, if I'm going to be honest. I think that I should, in, in, in part of um, loving um, others, for, okay, for the sake of the unity of the church, I, I don't. People don't always have to be like I don't have to correct people when I think they're wrong. If mm-hmm. if it's you know if it's not a time like I I don't always have the best discernment in those situations because because oh, sure. my gut says hey if they're wrong you got you need to correct them mm-hmm. because that's yeah. that's the loving thing to do. But but a lot of times that's on things that don't necessarily matter. And um, sometimes you part of loving people is biting your tongue for the sake of the unity of the body of believers. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I, I'd, I'd have to assume most people here who listen uh, would agree that from time to time, it, it's easy to want to be right more so than to be kind or to be loving yeah. to someone. Because, I mean, when you're right, you get that 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 little boost. You get a little, I guess, I'm willing to bet there's some endorphins that go off in your brain. Oh, sure. absolutely. You get that feeling, uh, and you like having that feeling, and you want that feeling more. But yeah, I mean, there's times and places, and I think a lot of times, even for me, it's not so much 
the desire to correct someone is probably the way I go about doing that gets me in trouble. Like yeah. there's some things like you should just talk to somebody off to the side or um, there's times where you need to, you know, just bite your tongue. There's times where you need to pull them aside. You don't need to do it right there in that moment, in that, right, that second. You need to actually think, well, hey, man, how am I going to respond? How am I going to address this? And then, then uh, the rarest of them all, but it does happen, there's times where I actually know you do have to speak up and you have to correct somebody. Um, but the idea is all of this, correcting, driving it somewhere, it's about the unity of the church. Sure. Yeah. You don't want to have anything affect that. You need to put, you need to count others as better than yourself or whatever. And, yeah. and one of my, one of my problems is that, uh, if I don't correct someone in the moment, I'll forget about it later, <laughs> which will probably be where a time where my bad memory would actually benefit me. Mm-hmm. Um, Hey, don't correct them right now. Do it later. And then I'll forget about it. And I'm, you, or you, you could know, write it in your notebook. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I don't carry that around with me all the time. So. Oh, okay. well, you should get a tiny notebook. Yeah, it's like a little Nick Saban with your notebook in your back pocket. <laughs> you know, for me, I, I think this, the thing that kind of drives home to me through these verses is this idea of surrendering to Jesus and, and truly following him, obeying him, walking with him. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And, and I think that's the heart of what salvation and following Jesus is. It's, it's this surrender of, I'm a rebel to God who needs to surrender my arms and join the other army, to join the other side. And not just, hey, I need a little self-help. And yeah. um, I, I think we twist that sometimes. I just need a little Jesus sprinkled on my that's life right. Right. when really we need Jesus to completely transform our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't come to make bad people good come to make dead people live. That's absolutely right. That's a great thought to end on this week with the Wordsmith Podcast. Man, I have really enjoyed our discussion today, and we'll be back next week for week four or episode four of season four of the Wordsmith Podcast. No matter how you listen to the Wordsmith, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or almost anywhere that podcasts are played, like us, review us, share it with a friend, ride to win the car with somebody, let them listen to it. We want to get get the word out about the wordsmith, and we'll be back with you guys next week. 